Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-med year, session number 511. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you all have a wonderful week or are having a wonderful week. I'm excited to jump into our guest today, a non-pre-med, a non-physician, but actually Rachel Grubbs, my partner at MAPT, my co-founder at MAPT, and someone who has been helping pre-meds now for close to 20 years. We're gonna have a great conversation about what she has seen in terms of pre-meds who succeed and don't succeed and what this journey has looked like and much more. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minute brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Rachel Grubbs used to work for Blueprint MCAT before she came hanging out with me. Um, And so she knows all about Blueprint and how amazing they are. If you are studying for the MCAT in this upcoming year, at the beginning of whatever year it is where you are listening to this, it is a great idea to understand what you are doing, what you are studying how you are studying, go to blueprintmcat.com, sign up for a free Blueprint MCAT account, use their free study planner tool so that you understand what goes into an MCAT prep plan. The majority of students that I talk to who are not doing well with the MCAT don't have a plan to do well on the MCAT. And signing up for a free Blueprint account and using that free study planner tool is the first step to making sure that you have a great plan. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our guest today again, Rachel Grubbs, co-founder and uh, partner with me at MAPT in Medical School Headquarters. Rachel Grubbs, welcome to the pre-med years. How you doing? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. This is uh, a probably long overdue to have you on the pre-med years. Well, it is the second time, but the first time I was on the pre-med years, you and I weren't co-founders of a company yet. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while, been and a while. <laughs> there lots of stuff ha- has gone on. So let's Indeed. let's ignore first episode um, and yeah. and talk about um, how you like. I I always I I always wonder like how someone gets involved in this crazy pre med world. I just yeah. wake up one day in college going, I see some classmates and they're super weird. Oh, they're pre meds. I want to go hang out with them, but not be one of them. Yeah, it wasn't quite like that, (laughs) um, but it was pretty random. So um, 
I went to Ohio State University. Um, yeah, <laughs> we can be rivals. It's okay. Uh, I went there in like the mid late nineties. And at that point, you know, Ohio State has become a much more competitive school and challenging school to get accepted to in the last 20, 30 years since I went there. But at that point, the academic rigor was there. So they were still accepting lots of students and then dealing with um, a lot of students who took a long time to graduate because they just didn't know what they want or maybe their math and English skills weren't ready. So they needed a lot of remediation before they took higher level classes. And thankfully that wasn't me. I came into college very well prepared for it, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, had enough pre-credits that midway through my second year, they said, you can't schedule anymore until you declare a major. And I still had no idea what I wanted to do. So I majored in Spanish because I love that language and I love literature. And I just thought it would be fun to do literature and cultural historical analysis in, in my second language instead of my first language. So, um, you know, you're not majoring in Spanish to learn Spanish. The assumption is by then, you know, it, you know, it's mm -hmm. more like being an English major. So I did that. And I did also get a business minor because I felt like maybe something practical would be cool. And I had no idea. So I graduated from college, worked for a few years, actually in a staffing agency. And, you know, it was a perfectly fine job, but it wasn't a career. And I was looking around for something that I thought would mentally reward me a little more. I really wanted to use my brain. And at the staffing agency, everything was really um, by the book. So they had well-established, wonderful systems, but almost no intellectual creativity. And mind you, I mentioned this was in the mid-late 90s. We still had newspapers. <laughs> I saw a text-only classified ad in a newspaper that said, learn how to run a business without having to wear a suit or lose your soul. And I thought, well, that sounds like <laughs> It's a me. pretty good, pretty good copy there. It's pretty good copy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the job was an assistant director at the Princeton Review, which is, you know, one of the major test prep companies. Mm -hmm. I applied, I got the job and just started down this path of, you know, I only knew a little bit about higher education. I was raised by educators, but they worked in the K-12 space, not the college space. Mm -hmm. So just kind of with my, you know, brains and general information, I started learning everything I could about SAT, ACT, LSAT, GMAT, MCAT. And for a while, I was supporting pre-college and pre-graduate as well as pre-med. And over the years, you know, I mean, the Princeton was, review was very good to me. I was there for like 12 years. My career just flourished with them. I was lucky to have a lot of amazing mentors. And um, one of the things I noticed over time, like we always talked lovingly about our students and groups. Like, you know, so there was a little bit of cubbyholing, never in a negative way, but just in a like, you know, SAT kids can get bored and MCAT kids can get nervous. And I think people would probably agree that those generalizations are fairish. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people were intimidated by our MCAT students. And I just loved them. Um, they were a little more nervous and anxious than a lot of our other students, but they were so serious and so passionate and so committed and so thinking about career and well-being and not just I got to check this box and take this test mm -hmm. and I did feel like they were very demanding people and again I'm generalizing but as a general rule I found that my MCAT students demanded more of their MCAT prep experience than other students but I also found that they gave me as much as they demanded hmm. right so 
um, I was never, uh, it just was so exciting to work with someone who wanted to work hard. You know, they weren't saying, I'm going to pay money for this prep course, fix my score. They were saying, I'm going to pay money and invest time and energy and come to class and ask questions and do the homework and do my best. And can you be my partner in getting there? And I did just really kind of fall in love with pre-meds. Yeah. Um, and I had had lifelong issues of my own health. So I already had kind of a predilection to doctors. Like sometimes I can be, sometimes I get tired of having to go to doctors because of my health stuff, but I'm still so grateful they're out there. So I think just the combination of the childhood illness and then what I just described, like I just found that without really meaning to, I became an MCAT specialist in the company. So the more I was at, the more I was at the Princeton Review, the longer people would say, well, if we need a new system for this, Rachel can probably come up with it. Or if we need to figure out how to explain this to MCAT students, Rachel probably is a good resource. Um, and that went on for a long time. And then at some point, um, I left the Prince Review and joined Next Step Test Prep, which is now Blueprint MCAT. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a really small company at the time. And it was right when the MCAT was changing in 2015. And we just had this sort of lightning in a bottle opportunity to help students prepare for this exam that was going to be dramatically different than it had been. Um, and ever since then, I've just only been working in the pre-med pre-health space. Um, yeah. and, um, it's been a joy. <laughs> yeah. And then a few years ago, we, we started mapped, we started talking, we started mapped and, uh, again, just more, more fun and helping pre-meds. What do you, what do you think it is? You, you talked about kind of the passion, the demand, but also the, the giving of themselves as well. What, what do you think it is about pre-meds again, generalizing that leads them to be so passionate about what they're doing? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot and obviously all individuals, right. Are going to have different reasons, but generally the most common threads I see are really, really caring about the calling, right? So they feel called to be physicians. They really want to be in healthcare. They want to help patients. Um, where I think sometimes with other higher education goals, uh, and, and I'm not trying to dismiss people. I'm just saying, I think sometimes people are thinking more about how can I build something for myself? If I go to law school, can I earn a lot of money? If I go to business school, will I be able to work for a Fortune 500? And certainly future physicians also have those goals, but they're often thinking about how they're going to serve people. So there's just this um, sense of accountability kind of to the world and not just to their own success. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's part of what makes them so passionate. And then I do think part of it is just that it's extremely challenging to get into med school. You know, it's no joke. Um, we've talked about the fact before that we don't really know the exact percentage of acceptance because since there's three centralized services in the United States, like each, each application service can say their own rate. But what we have to talk about is, well, what if you got denied from an MD, but into a DO or mm -hmm. into a Texas, but not an MD DO. So we think probably somewhere in the 40 ish percent acceptance rate. And that's, that's pretty low. Um, especially because, as you know, I mean, all of our listeners, I think, know the pre-med path is two or three years long before you even apply. So there's so much rigor that I think, especially when you're talking to people who are getting ready to apply or who are at the MCAT stage, so kind of far in the pre-med path, they've already done a lot of work. They've survived a lot of opportunities that kind of unfortunately weed out pre-meds. Um, and, and now they really know they're, they're in it, you know, yeah. they're in it to win it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, I, I'm interested. You, you mentioned weed out. Uh, there, there's been some news lately of a like a OCHEM professor oh, somewhere. Yeah. A, a lot of so people. Proud of those kids for yeah. helping him get spotlit the way he needed to be. A lot of people think that the weed out nature of some of these courses is is bad, and that anyone who wants to be a doctor should be a doctor. I have real mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Um, as a patient, as someone who's had a lot of wonderful doctors and a few not so great ones, I'm very glad to live in a country where we really make sure our future physicians have passed a lot of um, sort of checkpoints for academic rigor, for commitment, um, and for emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that I always kind of think about in the um, in the countries where students go straight from high school to med school. Is not that that's wrong, but I'm I'm interested to learn more about how it works because I think there's an enormous difference between an 18 year old and a 22 year old. Yeah. Right. So just the idea of being in med school and potentially working with patients when you have not much life experience so that makes me personally a little nervous. Like I'm, you know, I mean, I know there are always exceptions, right? We have a, a student who's 13 who's in med one this year, and um. I'm sure if she got that far, she's very mature, more mature than your average 13 year old. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so I have, I have some mixed feelings because personally, I think it's good that we don't let people rush into this very serious career where you're literally holding other people's lives in your hands. And yet this example of that, um, I think it was an NYU professor. Mm-hmm. He was failing something like 80% of his students. I mean, I don't know. I'm, don't quote me. I don't know if those stats are exactly right, but yeah. He was he was essentially deciding whether or not people could go to med school in a science course that you don't even really use once you get to med school. Yeah. Like organic chemistry in particular is an interesting one to me because it's so challenging. And I do think it sort of serves um, it serves an interesting test case for if you've been academically successful for your whole life, how will you handle taking a course that does not come to you easily? Yeah. Right. Because med school may not come to you easily. So I do think it's sort of a it's a good barometer for your ability to handle having to learn new study skills, having to feel uncertain, having to push yourself to use all the resources you can to survive the course. Um, But also, I don't think one undergraduate course should make or break your career. Um, So see, that's why I said, unfortunately, weeds out, because I mean, I've known people who got C's in OCHEM on their second attempt who are now amazing physicians. Yeah. Impossible. It's impossible. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know how, how many weeks before this episode comes out, will be an episode with Dr. Brian Elliott, who wrote uh, White Coat Ways, A History of Medical Traditions and Their Battle with Progress. And in that episode, we talk about kind of where medicine and medical education have come from. And there were some sketchy beginnings of like, diploma mills and hey just just pay me money and you you too can be a doctor uh and so we've we've come a long way and and it wasn't the uh the best intentions of of the start of where we've gotten to today but i think it works somewhat to to make sure and and not everyone right we have a whole uh podcast series on doctor death right it doesn't work for everyone coming through medical education unfortunately but we we do our best Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there are some changes that I think need to be made 
in our culture of training future physicians. Um, and you and I've talked about this before. Um, you know, I think that residents generally are um, overworked and treated unfairly. I mean, I think it varies program to program, but you know, there's just too many stories out there of people who are shamed when they need bathroom breaks or a, a moment to eat, right? Like mm -hmm. lunches for losers should not be a phrase. And yet it's commonly given yeah. to first year residents. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's not good. Yeah. Um, my, my motto was food comes first. Yeah. Um, the flip side is I've heard you point out is they're already in school and training for so many years. And if they don't do a couple years of 60 to 80 hours a week, then they're just going to end up being residents for way longer. And I don't know if that's true or not, right? Sometimes I think about that in the same way that people say, well, if you raise the minimum wage, all the prices will rise. But like, there are studies that show that's not actually true, mm -hmm. right? Like the minimum wage in Denmark is way higher than it is in the United States. And yet a Denmark cheeseburger costs less at McDonald's there where their employees have salaries and benefits than it yeah. does here. Um, so that's that's not always correlative. Yeah. Um, but um yeah, I think we do it okay. And I would love to see that we are humble enough as a community to keep trying to do better Yeah, and consider changes and not think in terms of, well, I had to, so you have to. Definitely. Right. You've, you've been in this game for a while. How have you seen the, the medical education or pre-medical education and, and MCAT journey and, and medical school application process change over the years or the students coming through change over the years? I think the process has gotten even more competitive and challenging. Um, when I started the Prince Review, it was 2001. The MCAT was still paper and pencil. It yep. was twice a year. So you either took it in mid-April or mid-August. So yes, even back then, rolling admissions was a thing. And we would say, ideally, you're applying in June and July. But there were always a ton of students who took it in April and didn't do great or who aimed for April and life happened. And every year, a lot of people would take the MCAT in August and still head on to med school. So there just was like a little more comfort with what if pieces of my application aren't submitted until September or October. Um, and you know, this was, this was paper and pencil. They still turned around the test in 30, 35 days. Why it takes that long even now with a computer-based test. I mean, <laughs> I could go on a whole litany about that. That seems weird to me. <laughs> um, but so I think that's just the, the pressure on the rolling admissions. And it's, it's something that I still almost once a week interact with someone who doesn't know. Yeah. You know, I talked to someone the other day, it was a few days before October 15th, which is a lot of, um, you know, a lot of med schools have deadlines that day. And he, he hadn't submitted his primary yet. And when I tried to gently advise him, hey, here's how rolling admissions work. Here's what you might want to think about in terms of, is it worth it for you to still try to squeeze in an application this year? Or do you want to just go ahead and work all fall and winter to put yourself in great shape? I, I really hurt, hurt his heart, you know, because he had no idea. So it didn't, I think in the moment, hopefully he'll reflect and be grateful that I gave him some tough love. Um, but in the moment, it felt like he came to me for help. And I said, no, you're not ready. You know, and I really wasn't saying you're not ready. I was more saying like the application system is rigged against you because you didn't know that you should have applied four months ago. Um, and, and so I think that we just need more transparency. Like the, the, the rolling admission pressure is so high. Um, 
you know, you can apply on October 15th, but some people also got acceptances on October 15th. And some med schools will do interviews all the way up to April, but some med schools are almost done with interviews now. So yeah, in theory, you can apply, but what's the chance you're going to get an interview at a school that isn't even offering any more interviews this year? Yeah. What are the chances? So it's funny. You you mentioned transparency, right? I gave a talk at a conference in 2019, I believe, that was all about transparency and how medical schools need more transparency in this process. And it's just hasn't changed, unfortunately. Like my my talk, and, and I had some numbers to look at what the actual um, data was, and I'm pulling it up here. It was um, 20, 24%, I believe, of schools actually mentioned rolling admissions on their website and what that right. meant. And, and, and it just all of them use some form of it or almost, almost all. all of them, almost all of them use rolling admissions. And yet nobody talked about it. <laughs> 24%. I'm like, why? What is the goal of hiding that information? And I could be super um, uh, pessimistic. That's not the right word. Um, cynical, yeah. cynical about it and go, well, they don't want to mention rolling admissions so that they get more applications, they can send out more secondaries, they can get more secondary fees. Yeah. And that's probably the truth, unfortunately. Yeah. But this and is not, also, not right. they might be playing with yield numbers, right? Because some of those um, full of baloney ranking systems <laughs> are about the percentage of applicants, the applicants against accepted. So they are well incented, unfortunately, to encourage people to apply who maybe shouldn't be applying. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot, yeah, US News. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not just them, but definitely them. Uh, <laughs> the Barons list is also no bueno. Um, uh, so yeah, when you gave that talk, that was in Toronto a few years ago. Is that yeah. correct? And in your audience, did you have med school representatives? That's all that was there. They were admissions so committee how members. How was it received? This uh, conversation? Well, one of started. the people that received it very well now works for us, Courtney Lewis, because she's like, yeah. oh, I like you. Um, and she wants to fight for the same thing. And other people were like, Trans- we can't be transparent. We're fighting over the same students. And I'm like, that's not right. Whatever. So, uh, yeah. Sounds it's like med schools need a little collaboration, not competition pep talk. You think? Yeah. You think? I'm like, you, you sift through 8,000 applications. Do you think there's not enough students to go around? Uh, and so it's it's hard. It's an uphill battle. Uh, I'm fighting it. We're fighting it day in, day out, um, trying to change some of the mindset around this. And then with Mapped, I'm really hoping as we gather more data from Mapped, now that we have an application tracker in Mapped as well, and we can start to see uh, where students are getting in, we can see the stats that they're putting into Mapped, we'll be able to be much more transparent with data than anyone else is willing to be. Right. We'll yeah. see. We'll also, see who we piss off along the I way. <laughs> yeah. And I just think generally information should never be hidden. I mean, obviously, med schools aren't going to be able to share the analysis they made on every single applicant they looked at. Right. And I know students would love that. If they don't get in, they'd love to know why. And yeah. I do understand that there are going to be, I mean, partly just from volume. That's that's challenging, right? Fees would have to be enormous for med schools to have enough people to do that. Yeah. Um, 
but at least being honest about what they're considering and how the timeline works. And, and yeah, I think that's where people like you and I and Courtney and our other advisors come in is to, to try to help share that information. Um, what I've seen in many cases is that med schools will share that on an individual basis. So if you go to a fair and ask about rolling admissions, they'll tell you. Yeah. But so then, but then what about the people who can't get to the fair? Like, is the system set up that way to reward people who are more involved in the process? And, you know, and, and the one hand, I think applicants get so few interactions with the med school. So it's kind of cool that the people who are able to show up and interact are getting these little moments of clarity. But also you and I both know that a lot of people who would make great physicians aren't full-time college students. Mm. So they may not have the bandwidth or even someone in their life to tell them, hey, it's really important you're going to these fairs. Hey, it's really important that you're reading the websites thoroughly and then emailing them to ask questions that aren't there. Um, and I mean, everyone has to have those same questions. So why not just have it all on the website? Why not have it all? Yes, exactly. That, that's the question. So as you look at kind of your journey in this crazy, chaotic pre-med world, uh, now building mapped and hoping uh, that that it allows every student to understand this process, be much more transparent with this process. What what do you think the end goal is for for you for mapped? Uh, I'm hoping because we have a free level of mapped that basically every pre med utilizes our free resources. Um, I mean, you and I both know, right, we're running a for-profit company. I do, we do need some services to be paid for for us to keep doing what we're doing. But I think of those paid services as a bonus for the students who have the means for them and a way for you and I to keep providing as much free information as possible. Um, because, because there is this lack of transparency and because currently there is ambivalence from the med schools, right? Some people may want transparency and some don't. We could you know, beg and plead and lobby the AAMC and the other application services to make all this stuff transparent, or we could just take action into our own hands, which is what we're doing. Um, so I feel like for me, success is if I can move the needle to where more people are aware of what's out there for free to help them and where, um, not that I think MAPT alone will be responsible for this, but if we can start to see better representation from students who have historically not been represented in med school, then I'll feel like, okay, we're contributing to the right solution. Um, and, um, you know, studies show there was an NIH study not too long ago that showed that, um, for example, racial correlation leads to better health outcomes and lower health expenditure. So basically we need more doctors who look like all of America and not that doctors should only serve patients who look like them, but we need a healthy mix of physicians from multiple demographics and walks of life so that patients can find the doctor that's the right fit for them. Yeah. Where do you think pre-med students fall short in their, their aspirations for being a physician? Yeah. Um, so from an academic standpoint. There's probably more, more than one potential area they fall short, but I'll start with academics. With academics, one of the co most common mistakes I see is this idea that humanities don't matter or that humanities aren't, um, aren't coachable, like that's not a skill that you can acquire. 
Um, and I mentioned off the top, I was a Spanish major. So obviously I am a huge fan of language. I, I studied how to read, write, and think. Um, you know, and I did take some rigorous math and I took some science, not much, <laughs> um, not as much as you might think given the career I have, um, you know, so I could do some of that work, but it wasn't what I loved. And, um, you know, I've, I've had students say things to me like, well, cars isn't anything you can improve. I think really, like you read better today than you read when you were five. Why couldn't <laughs> you read better next year than you read today? Like, of course, critical reading is a coachable skill. Yeah. Um, but so what I see is a lot of pre-meds who are so fixated on science and math and those kinds of um, discrete quantifiable skills that they forget that not just on the MCAT, but also just in life, they will succeed for further if they um, have learned how to critically analyze and problem solve um, essentially word problems and life problems. Um, and so for me, I think, you know, as a pre-med, you're required to take so many science courses and some English and social science courses. And I think a lot of pre-meds fail to realize like this is an opportunity for me to stretch my brain in a way that I don't get to a lot. Mm -hmm. And these skills are going to serve me throughout my pre-med process and throughout my life. And yep. just kind of embracing the idea that it matters. You know? <laughs> yeah, I struggled with that. Uh, in medical school, I, I went in super close-minded. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And one of the first classes I took was histology. I'm like, why the heck do I need to know histology? Uh, I'm going to be fixing bones. And so I focused all my attention on anatomy uh, and ignored histology. And shocker, I failed the first histology test. In medical school, because I was like, this is useless to me as a ortho bro. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is just a mindset, right? Is do you have a love of learning? Are you inherently curious? Um, and also, I think some of it is a mindset of like, do you see your career as a physician, as a technician, right? Like, I just want to fix broken bones. Or do you want to think about the patient and have enough information, even if you can't fix other problems outside of your specialty, which, you know, you shouldn't if you don't have those <laughs> certifications, but at least enough to know to say, hey, this thing that's out of my purview might be impacting your health and might be related to the thing I'm trying to fix. So let's get you connected to a different specialist to look at it. Um, and, you know, some of what I'm talking about is often just referred to holistic medicine. But I think sometimes once we say the word holistic, there are certain minds out there where the ears just go and close because holistic can seem like artsy fartsy hippy dippy um and that's not really what i'm talking about i'm just talking about considering the whole patient and understanding that um one thing that's happened with western medicine in particular is that we've decided to look at the body in a lot of concrete parts and i think if people are thinking more about systems and remembering how closely everything works together then the level of care is just going to be higher and that does mean being open-minded to a lot of to your point, education in med school. And then my point is being a better reader, writer, thinker so that you can have those conversations with the patient and pick up on the subtle clues that give you those data points. Yeah. When you, when you look at yourself being a patient, what do you hope every physician going through training, every pre-med going through training, how do you hope they approach patients beyond that holistic, what we just talked about? Yeah. Yeah, the number one thing for me is listening. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess kind of part of that, but re you know, related to it is respect. Um, 
I've, I've learned um, a lot about how to advocate for myself. Um, I tend to get very nervous in doctor's appointments and I just want to get out of there. So I will literally come in with a list on my notes app and my phone so that I can say, no, wait, because, you know, sometimes they do their thing and then they're ready to head <laughs> out the door and go chart and go to the next appointment. Yeah. And I will say literally like, hang on, I'm checking my list and, and make sure. And I don't, I don't necessarily mind that because even if I have to do that advocating, that's not a red flag to me because doctors are just busy people. Mm -hmm. But when I do that, I want them to stop and turn around and sit back down or at least plant their feet, you know, not have a hand at the door to let me get through all the things I need to. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think there's rules around the way doctor's appointments are structured. So like sometimes if you have, I don't know, you go to the dermatologist and you have a mole, they're not going to also want to do your physical that, that the same, or their, your annual whole skin check. Yeah. And that's fine. Like I'll play by whatever rules they have, but I want my questions answered. I want them to want to have a conversation with me. I want eye contact. Um, and I, I think a lot of, um, I mean, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of great doctors, but um, I think until pretty recently, like maybe really even until the advent of the internet, Patients just put up with whatever behavior they got because it was very hard to choose doctors. Yeah. But now we have the internet, we have reviews online, we have um, apps like ZocDoc, which I just personally love. I use it all the time. Um, if a doctor's not on ZocDoc, then I'm like, what's wrong with you? You're not even in the right century, you know? Um, and I don't want to ever have to make a phone call to make an appointment. I just think that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, so I'm looking for those people who are kind of changing with the times and understand that as a physician, even though we use the word patient, they are your customers also. And if a doctor doesn't treat me with respect, or if the doctor's great, but their office is a mess, mm. they're not going to get my business. Um, so I'm looking for doctors who are aware of that. And as someone who's been in customer service, I don't think that means they have to treat me like I'm always right because I'm not, I'm coming to them for expertise. I just want them to have a conversation with me about my health as opposed to just dictate things and then exit. Yeah. For the pre-med listening to this right now, who is struggling on their journey, struggling with the MCAT, struggling with OCHEM, struggling with uh, being mindful and self-care and all of that stuff, what kind of final words of wisdom, encouragement do you have for them? Uh, you're smarter than you think you are. And a lot of your success is about resources and attitude, not about uh, brain power. You probably have the brain power. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, the term is often imposter syndrome, although our friend Sunny Nakai says it should be lack of belonging, like to put the pressure on the community for not accepting versus on the person. But I think there are a lot of people who in the pre-med process, when they struggle, think this must be me, I must not be good enough. And the truth is there are a lot of challenges in the system and surviving them as opposed to thriving in them. I mean, I hope you thrive, but if you only survive, if you just you know, work your heart out and you get a C plus in OCHEM, that doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you passed OCHEM and you don't have to retake it. <laughs> you know? And um, I mean, even if you have to take it twice, those kinds of things are going to be blips in the road later, right? So just keeping that attitude of, this isn't about whether or not I'm good enough. It's just about how hard I'm going to work and what I have to do to shift my life to make the space to work that hard. So 
you know, some people come with more advantages than others, right? If, if you're a full-time college student and your parents say, we'll put you up all summer, you can come live at our house and you won't have to have a job and just do MCAT prep. That's going to be a lot easier than for someone who has to do a part-time job or has children or grandparents who depend on them. So just acknowledging what your challenges are, but then having a conversation with the people in your life to support you to make that space, right? So, you know, I often hear moms say, I try to take my practice test and my toddler's there. Like somebody in your life has to take the toddler for seven hours so you can go take a test, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And that, I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying it's, it's a team effort and it's about resources. So instead of thinking, maybe I'm not good enough, I want the person to think, what do I need to do to make the space in my life to do the work to get there? All right, there you have it. Again, Rachel Grubbs, my co-founder at Mapped and a partner with me now in all things that we do and so many more amazing things coming. I hope you are just as excited as I am with everything that we have coming here at Mapped and Medical School Headquarters. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.